Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. I want to invite you to join me in 1 Kings chapter 17. As the kids are heading out, you can turn there. You'll notice that we are still in this saga of Elijah and the widow in Zarephath. This is part two of their story. Um, this story is God's story, as we see each and every week. And my prayer is that as we look today in God's story, we will see the heart of God, be reminded of and drawn further into our gracious place in Him. Now, kids, let me have your attention, okay? As you're listening to the Word, as you're listening to the sermon, this is what I want you to listen for. You're going to hear about a miracle, and it's a big miracle. There's going to be a little boy who's going to be raised back to life. But here's what I want you to listen for. This is going to sound like a funny question, but is that miracle for the boy, or is it for his mother? Hint, maybe it's for his mother. But as you listen for that, I want you to listen for what changes in her because of that miracle, okay? And you can talk to your parents about that over lunch. Now, as we prepare to look to this passage, let me, let me ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, you are, as we have just sung, good and gracious, and we pray as we come to your word that you would expose within us the ways in which we're tempted to doubt your goodness, your graciousness, and that you would, in exposing, draw us ever deeper into the reality of our union with Christ, and that we would know that that union is ours because you are indeed good and gracious. And so we pray for your glory and for our good. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, you have brought calamity even upon the, upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord 
is in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this week we made that fateful change in our house. We switched the thermostat from cool to heat. It was Monday night. I was looking at the weather. I saw how cold it was going to get that night, so I I flipped the switch, the heat came on, and it ran for about 10 minutes. And then I heard a weird sound outside. A few days later, we called the repairman. (laughs) He came and shared the news that there is something called an inducer motor that was two months out of warranty and dead. We got it fixed. But I need to confess before you the thoughts that went through my head and my heart in that moment. I'm not proud of this, but as I thought about it, I, I thought, Lord, I am trying to serve you. Does that not count for anything? It's been a hard week. There are hard things coming up. Why this? Why now? You are not holding up your end of the bargain being inconsistent in the moment for varying reasons I flipped another switch not just on our thermostat but on the terms of my relationship with God and in questioning him in that way I was expecting the Lord to reward me for my faithfulness as shallow was then and seems now. On one hand, it's silly, it's not really silly, but it's real life. You ever have these conversations with the Lord about a heat pump? How about when the stakes are higher? This passage opens up with two very powerful words, after this. After this. Remember where we were last week. The Lord had just miraculously promised to sustain the widow and her son and and Elijah. And he was doing so by by keeping the jar of flour and oil, if not full, ample. The Lord was doing that. And after this, or rather, actually in that same time period, we come to this text. You see, they're connected. And yet, in the connection, we feel a sense of whiplash. The Lord sustains life. And the Lord takes it away. So what are we to do with this seeming inconsistency in the Lord? What did the widow do? Last week I stood in this pulpit and asserted before you that that the story that we read last week was evidence of the Lord drawing her through a very difficult ask into saving faith. The Lord asked the widow to give her, give him everything that she had, and she did. And we, we said that that was evidence of her trusting in the Lord, his drawing her to himself. But now this text... And she is lashing out. 
verse 18, she says to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. As I reflected on this passage this week, I find myself agreeing with commentator Phil Riken as, as he says that what's really going on here is that the widow is displaying a spiritual condition of disbelief. Not unbelief. Disbelief. I still believe that in the prior section she was displaying true belief in the Lord, but here with the trials of life, she displays something else, disbelief. Maybe it's temporal, maybe it's very targeted, but if that's the case, what was she disbelieving? Could it be the goodness of God? Could it be the graciousness of God? Like so many of us, she had enough faith for the good times, but possibly not the bad. And so in her response, she is essentially saying, I am in a state of disbelief that this is happening to me. But that's not what she said, was it? Because that's not how disbelief came out with her or comes out with us. When tragedy hit, she went straight to her sin. And she made an assumption that there was something in her that must have caused this. And in doing so, she also made a switch. Making this relationship with God transactional. It shows up for different people in different Sometimes we assume that the good that is going on in our life must be because of the good that I'm doing for the Lord. Sometimes we feel like the bad that is showing up is a result of some sin in my life. Now, there is no doubt that Scripture points to the reality of covenantal blessings and discipline. It comes from the Lord, and yet when... Life happens to us and we take our focus off of Him and put it on ourself. There's the rejection of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we redefine the terms of that relationship, choosing instead a works mentality. But there are other ways that believers can fall into disbelief. We could fall into a practical disbelief of God's providential care over all of creation, a practical disbelief of His sovereignty, and that leads us into a neglect of prayer. We could fall into a practical disbelief of the holiness of God leading us to embrace sin in our lives, even that little sin off to the side. We can fall into practical disbelief of the truth and the timeliness of the Word of God, leading us to look to the world around us for the answers to questions that we're so desperately longing to receive. 
can find himself in practical disbelief of God's willingness and ability to forgive and transform sinners, which sends us into a downward spiral of self-determination and self-destruction. Can you relate to any of this? As I think through this, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of the truth about preaching. We're not here to simply inform our minds. We're here to interact with the text and to have an encounter with the living God. It draws out for us the areas in which we are disbelieving in the goodness of God. I, we've already confessed our sins, but I want to take just a moment in the context of this sermon to interact with the text and have a bit of silence to consider and confess before the Lord the areas in which we're doubting His goodness and it's scary. Just in a moment of reflection and prayer, we're silent before the Lord. evidence actually of his goodness that we can come before the Lord our God to confess these struggles and it's so helpful for us to do that but perhaps you're here and you're wondering hey James time out a minute what what's the real problem in this text is it the disbelief of the widow or is it the death of the child fair question it's both or the problem What I think we see in the flow of this text is that the Lord is sovereignly working through the one to address the other. We see that begin to unfold as the the widow lashes out at the prophet. Grief will cause you to do that. Grief will cause you to lash out. The goodness of God receives it. He receives it. And so Elijah, he, he doesn't try and defend his place. He just responds with patience, with kindness, and in prayer. He took the child up in his arms. He, he carried the child upstairs, and he prayed an audacious prayer. The There are many sermons in this text, and the one sermon that I am attempting to preach is dealing with the Lord's work in the widow, but as we do so, we have to consider on some level Elijah's prayer, a prayer in which he prayed that the Lord would bring the child back to life. What basis could Elijah possibly have for praying such an audacious prayer? I only half-jokingly describe my golf strategy as hit it and hope. Um, I, uh, I take a swing and just hope for a good ending. I don't know where the ball's going. Some of us, as we're thinking about decisions in our lives, we, we take some version of that. I'm going I'm to throw some things on the wall and we'll see what sticks. Not really committed to any one idea. We're just going to throw it up there somewhat 
aimlessly, not really believing in one or the other, but we're going to just try. And Sometimes is that the way we pray? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw some thoughts up to the sky. I'm going to throw some thoughts up to the Lord. We'll, we'll see what he's going to do. Elijah is doing just the opposite. Elijah is doing just the opposite in his prayer. He is praying confidently, boldly, and what we need to see is that his prayer is rooted in promise. Before I go too much further, I want to, I want to say something that we need to understand before we start making an application that we are to now go pray for the dead to rise up. The promise that Elijah is, is resting on is one that the Lord has just given to him as his prophet and that he has communicated to the widows, a promise that the Lord made to sustain them all throughout this drought. But please also don't miss this, that when we pray, we are also praying prayers rooted in the promises of God. come back to that in a moment. But more than, than merely this promise that God had made to Elijah to, to, to sustain the widow and her son and Elijah throughout this drought, there's another foundation for Elijah's prayer, a particular outworking of the promise that God makes to Elijah and that Elijah is clinging to. Maybe you noticed it in verses 20 and 21 as I read Elijah's prayer before the Lord. In verse 20, he starts out, O Lord, my God. In verse 20, he, he continues, O Lord, my God. Lord is, is translated here in the ESV is the way the translators have captured the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the covenantal name of God, the name by which God is known among his chosen people. In other words, Elijah is calling upon his covenantal God and he's calling him my God. Rooted in promise, Elijah is praying a prayer that is dependent upon the covenantal and gracious relationship that he has with the Lord. And so then there's the content of the prayer. Verse 20, Elijah boldly cries out a cry of lament. Then, in verse 21, he boldly cries out a cry of petition. He and we can do this confidently trusting in the promises of God and in our covenantal relationship with Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. But what about the stretching out over the child three times? This is not a prescriptive text for how we are to go about praying for our deceased loved ones to be raised from the dead. It's not a technique for us to mimic. What's happening here is that Elijah is falling prostrate, pleading with the Lord. This is not a formula. It is a position of reverence position of submission, a position of earnestness. 
Takeaway is not for us to pray for our deceased loved ones to be raised again. It is for us to pray prayers rooted in the promises of God and our relationship with Him and to give ourselves over fully to those prayers. Then, beautifully in this text, we see that through that prayer, the Lord raised the boy. I'm being very specific in what I say there. Elijah didn't raise the boy. God did. God raised the boy. This is a very important point that we see there on display in this text. For the widow and for us is the resurrection power of God. Verse 22, and the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he Revived. It is a mighty display of the power of God, but who is it for? I asked you kids that at the beginning. Here's the answer, at least my version of an answer. Is this resurrection primarily for the boy or for the widow, his mother? There is no doubt the boy is given life, and that is glorious and beautiful, but the text is pointing us to a deeper meaning here. In verse 18, the widow questions Elijah, O man of God, what are you doing? But what I'm trying to draw out here is that ultimately she is questioning the goodness of God. And then we we go through this account and then the weight of the text lands on verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. See it. Through this power of God that is displayed in the raising up of the child, the widow confesses. She confesses that Elijah, truly you are the man of God. But more importantly, she confesses that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This miracle is primarily meant to draw her from disbelief to faith. The Lord is rescuing the woman here. The Lord is rescuing the woman from disbelief, and He's doing so through a personal encounter with the resurrection power of God. We see that throughout Scripture. Old and knew that the resurrection power of God does this in two ways. It attests to the life-giving word of God, and it draws us into a deeper experience of life through the word of God. First, this attesting to the life-giving word, I, I, I agree with the con- commentators who call this a sign passage. This is what I mean by a sign passage. Passage. The widow of Zarephath, when her son was given to her, she did not in her mind have the clarity that one day there would be a redeemer named Jesus who would, would come and live a perfect life, who would go to the cross to die an atoning death, would be buried in the grave, and three days later he would rise up out of the tomb. There was not a straight line for the widow from the raising of her son to the empty tomb. No, but there was. 
display of the resurrection power of God. In her, or in, in this miracle, she could see that the God who promised a Redeemer is able. We see that throughout Scripture. If we look forward to the New Testament, to the Apostle John's account of the gospel of Jesus Christ at the, at the end, and in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he, he ties this together, not specifically speaking of the widow at Zarephath, but through the raising of Jesus and all the miracles that Jesus did. John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. What was the purpose of this miracle, the purpose of all the miracles in Scripture? It is that we would believe that the Word of Christ is true and that the Word about Christ is true. And in believing this word, we might have life in his name. For the widow, that belief was in a God who both could and would provide a redeemer who would redeem her from the sin that she is confessing here for us. Draws us into a belief in the Redeemer who did come. And in the Father who loved her and us enough to send him. It's the same Father for us and the widow in Zarephath. Who would love with a love that is so strong that he would bring this kind of hard to draw us into a deeper relationship with Him, into truer life in Christ. The resurrection power of God attests to the truth of God's Word, but it also draws us into an experience of life. Again, in John's Gospel account, John 10, 10, the incarnate Word, Jesus Christ, says this, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Brothers and sisters, abundance in the Christian life is not measured in the accumulation of goods, but by the experience of relationship with our Lord. Abundant life is experienced by union in Christ. As we go back to the promises of God, we heard of the very specific promise given to the widow of Zarephath through the prophet Elijah. But there is another promise that we have. Not the promise for the Lord to sustain us through drought or through failing heat pumps. The Lord gives us this promise. I will be their God. And they will be my people. It's a promise we find in the old. It's the promise we find in the new. And that promise is a covenant promise, meaning it is not transactional. It is relational to the core. And even though we are inconsistent in the ups and downs of disbelief, our God is thoroughly consistent, thoroughly steadfast, thoroughly faithful to His own promises 
And as evidence of his steadfast love and faithfulness, he displays his resurrection power even for disbelievers. You know, each week I, I wrestle with the text, trying to understand its meaning and, and praying through the application that the Lord is giving us here together. At times, that application takes the form of, of specific action items, and there is no doubt we've tried to draw out some of those in terms of the lessons that we derive from prayer. But maybe more importantly, from this text, the application is a call for us to receive. I took a moment to confess my own sin and to invite you into an ever so brief moment of reflection and confession. And the beauty of the gospel is that we can do just that. Because our relational God says, I am here to receive it. But also because our relational God has entered in to our confessions, to our very lives, to draw us closer to himself. He does so for us with the same power with which he raised the widow's son and with which he raised our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 summarizes this all so well in the opening verses of Ephesians 2. We have one of the most beautiful Succinct summaries of the gospel. That chapter opens up when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Verse 4. But God. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The widow needed that grace. You and I need that grace, not some abstract notion of grace, not some feeling of grace, but we need the grace of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Him, not only have you died with Him, you have been resurrected with Him. Resurrected to the newness of life. Please understand, brothers and sisters, that if you are here this morning and you're not in Him, it's the same resurrection power that we've been talking about in the text. The, the resurrection power that is on display for us in the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, that power is offered to you in the gospel and it is not received through some transaction of your goodness. It is received by faith alone. In Christ alone. Take hold of Him today. And now Christ Church, for all of us, with the widow, let us recognize. The steadfast presence and enduring glory of God, even in the midst of the trials that come to us, 
the heartbreaks of life. And in the midst of those, let us experience His sanctifying love by clinging to His gracious and powerful promises. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise You because unlike us, You do not waver. You are steadfast and faithful. You are true to your promise, and your promise is to redeem for yourself a people who are the beneficiaries. I pray that we would, through this word of your promise, experience the abundance of life that you have for us. And if there be any here this day who have not taken hold of you by faith, I pray that you would do a miraculous work of new birth and we trust that you will in Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.